and welcome to the Well-Read Podcast, a bi-weekly discussion on books and reading. I'm Hallie. And I'm Anne. And we're librarians with Beaufort County Library in South Carolina. And this week we are going to be discussing a topic near and dear to Anne's heart, food. Food. <laughs> Actually, books related to food. Yeah. Uh, Anne, you consider yourself a foodie, is this correct? Sure. I don't know that I've sort ever of. used that word about, uh, about myself, okay. but I guess I fit. You do, Probably. I would say. Yeah. I really like food. I really like learning about food. I like researching food. I like going to any restaurant that I can find. And I like all kinds of foods from other countries. And yeah. and I like reading about food yes. a lot. So, But you like all those things, too. So I don't know that I'm that different than you. No, but I... Yeah, I don't know. Do you have do you have multiple magazine subscriptions no. about food? Okay. See, that's different. That's yeah, my, that's where my step I like to eat. Yeah. That's where it kind of ends for me. Like, yeah. I just like to eat a lot. <laughs> The research part of it. The isn't, research isn't, part isn't, so. isn't. But I mean, I love, like I like trying different things yeah, and yeah. stuff. But although, what, what I guess I wouldn't consider you like a true foodie because they do like extreme eating things, don't they? Yeah. Wouldn't you say? Well, I don't one know. time I I flew to Washington D.C. only to go to a pop up restaurant. Oh, and yeah, I met my that. sister there. Yeah, and we spent like three hundred dollars. <gasps> really it was insane. But it was great. It was one of the best trips I've taken. <laughs> uh, all right. So, what do you think? I mean, obviously eating. Is good because you get yummy flavors. Yeah, yeah. But why do you think that there's an appeal to reading books about food or related to food? Um, I think any, at least for me, I like bringing in other um, things I'm interested in in my real life into the book world. So any topic that I can I can kind of merge my two interests or any of my interests, one of them being books and the other being know food or whatever other Eurovision probably. If I can if I can <laughs> if combine we could write those. A book. Oh my gosh. About Eurovision and food, would that be like your dream? A cozy mystery about <gasps> Eurovision and oh, a my chef heart just or something? Beating so hard. Yes. <laughs> Somebody out there, get on that. No, don't take our sweet idea. <laughs> oh, you're gonna write it yourself? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> my my jaw is completely dropped right now, and my with my eyes are all wide. But I don't. I guess that's there's something really satisfying about that to me mm. to to have these things combined and mm. have like I get ideas for recipes. I get ideas for things I want to eat. I I think that food is something that we're completely beholden to in our lives. And so when you can make it fun, it's mm. it's a lot more enjoyable. And I books are something that it's, that are really important to me and mm. something I can't do without. And mm. so these those two things being combined is just like the perfect combination for yeah. me. All right. Well, what's your first suggestion then? Uh, my first book is called Food Whore, a novel of dining and deceit by Jessica Tom. And the description on the back of the book defines food whore as someone who will do anything for food, which pretty much tells you what this book is about. Um, it's about a recent college grad named Tia Monroe, who is beginning her graduate studies at NYU at their prestigious food program. And she's gained a little bit of fame um, in her uh, college career for an article that she wrote for the college paper about a dish that she had cooked with her grandfather and that article ended up being picked up by the New York Times. And so she thought that this article would make her a shoe-in for mm-hmm. her dream internship with a woman named Helen Lasky, who is, a, in the book, is a former New York Times food critic and, and cookbook author. And I think she's kind of supposed to be a stand-in for Ruth Reichel. Oh, okay. She sort yeah. of gives that impression to me. But instead, she's assigned to work the coat rack at, or the coat check, I should say, at a Manhattan restaurant, <laughs> which is not ideal. No. It's not something anyone <laughs> wants to be the as their internship so she's sort of left feeling adrift about her future and and what her place is Mm -hmm. going to be in the food world 
But during one of her shifts at the restaurant, she has a chance encounter with Michael Saltz, who is the current New York Times food critic in the book. These are all fictional people, I mm-hmm. should say. Don't mm-hmm. don't get confused. Yeah, this is not <laughs> a memoir that no. you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and he offers Tia the chance of a lifetime. He says that if she will ghostwrite his restaurant reviews, she'll be able to eat at the best restaurants in New York City. She'll get a lavish expense account for her clothes and she'll be propelled into this amazing food career. But the reason that he's offering this is a career ending secret that he has which is that he's lost his sense of taste. It's really drama. a big deal. Yeah, yeah, that's super drama. So Tia says that she has nothing to lose and she agrees to do this and she enters this world of celebrity chefs and luxurious restaurants and trendy New York hotspots and everything is really great and she's and she thinks that she's had it made, but then the excitement begins to fade once she realizes that Michael Saltz is taking credit for all of her words and oh. she's not, yeah. um, she's just this completely silent partner in this agreement. So... As she's becoming more involved in this new lifestyle, she starts to lose touch with all of her family and her friends, and she has a boyfriend that she neglects, and she has to decide if she's going to give in to this new way of life or if she's going to retain her soul, basically, and and she has to decide what she's willing to do for her career and for food, which, if you think this sounds a lot like The Devil Wears Prada, it is a lot like The Devil Wears Prada, (laughs) Um, which is really a standard chiclet formula Mm. of the girl comes to the city, she becomes enchanted with the lifestyle there and then starts to lose herself and has to decide what she's going to to um, which which path she's going to take and that's fine that's that's just how mm-hmm. chiclet works mm-hmm. but what sets this apart is that the food writing is really exceptional um the author jessica tom was herself a food critic for the uh, yale daily news and she has her own food blog and i'm completely in love with how she writes about food i find that for myself it's really easy to describe bad experiences or bad movies or mm-hmm. bad books or mm-hmm. bad food but it's really hard to explain why something is good mm-hmm. and she does such a good job with it she is really able to take um words and make your senses come alive mm-hmm. with them she's she's really talented um in that regard and so i really enjoyed that part of the book especially and this is just a light quick read it's mm-hmm. it's something that's that's fun for an airplane ride or a beach read and if you love food mm-hmm. and you love food descriptions you'll be very very happy with this book that sounds really fun. Yeah, it was yeah. a good time. It's called Food Whore by Jessica Tom. All right. Well, I'm going to skip actually from what I was planning on talking about first to the one I was planning on talking about last, which is Garlic and Sapphires, The Secret oh. Life of a Critic in Disguise by Ruth Reichel, because mm-hmm. she was a food critic for the New York Times. So she's sort of, like you said, the real person behind right. this fictional character that you just talked about. Reichel is the former editor of Gourmet Magazine. Sadly, Gourmet Magazine is no longer. Yeah. Uh, and she was a food critic for the LA Times earlier in her career. And then she was wooed away by the New York Times to be their critic. And as soon as the announcement came that she was going to be their new critic, photos of her popped up in restaurants all across New York. Because, of course, when the New York Times reviews your restaurant, you want to be giving the most top-notch food and service that you possibly can to this person. So they write a rave review because she has the power to make or break you. Right, exactly. So, of course, Reichel wants her reviews to be unbiased and based on the food that anybody like you or I would get if you were to walk into a restaurant and not the extra special impressive food mm-hmm. just because she is the New York Times um, book, uh, book reviewer, not a book yeah. reviewer, food reviewer. <laughs> <laughs> and so she adopts several different disguises and goes to all of these restaurants. She takes great lengths to keep her identity a secret and to keep her anonymity. So she has, I think it's it's been a little while since I read this book, but I want to say like five or six different characters mm-hmm. that she's, and personas that she takes on. And, you know, she wears wigs and like prosthetic 
noses and mm-hmm. to obscure her features and takes on personality traits to try to hide who she really is. And it's just such a fun way to experience this lifestyle that she has. And she was also, she did something interesting. She was on a quest to find the best type of every type of food in New York, not just what was kind of the usual things that were reviewed in the New York Times, which was typically continental cuisine. So she was reaching out at the time. This must have been in the 80s or 90s, I guess, that she would have done this. So sushi wasn't as big of a deal as it Mm -hmm. is now. Like lots of those Asian or non-European food, I guess, really. It was just very continental. I think it was trendy. It just wasn't it wasn't it was respected. A, right, it was right, something yeah. that people didn't write reviews about. Okay, yeah. So. so that yeah, so that was a better way of saying that. So people were eating it, but there weren't they weren't being reviewed. Yeah. And so she was changed all of that and mm-hmm. she brought, I guess, a respectability, according to the people who consider the New York Times restaurant review to be kind of the guiding force behind what is a stellar restaurant versus mm-hmm. what is just like for the little people kind of a restaurant. Yeah. Um so she really kind of changed the the way that these people who the New York Times readers viewed restaurants I should say and so her descriptions of the food are really mouthwatering and excellent she does a really good job of describing the restaurants and the experiences and the hijinks she uses to disguise herself <laughs> and the lengths she goes to are really just like I said they're fun and it's kind of like a little bit of a caper story because mm-hmm. she's constantly doing that um, and then there's just an inside glimpse into the restaurant reviewing world which is really interesting and some of these well-known top-notch restaurants so yeah, so that's Garlic and Sapphire is the Secret Life of a Critic in Disguise by Ruth Reichel. And again, I just, she's written multiple memoirs mm-hmm. of her life. So this was just a certain section of her life. She has one more about her childhood and growing yeah. up. Um, and so I recommend any of the books by her, but that's one of her more relatively recent memoirs. Since then, she's written a novel, but mm-hmm. that was more recent me- memoir of hers. Yeah, that's one of my favorite food memoirs. I think that's oh. the book that got me into food writing. Mm-hmm. That I just picked it up randomly at, at the library a few years mm-hmm. ago, and it was, I think, an audiobook, and it was just so charming. And, oh, that and, would be fun as an yeah, audiobook. Yeah, it's such a good audiobook. And, and she, like, her big thing was to include both of the reviews of herself mm-hmm. as the, the New York Times food critic and the character, and mm-hmm. to show oh, how right. the differences of how service went for those two people. Mm-hmm. And there's a huge difference. Yeah. And, and that's that's a big deal when when a four star restaurant gives horrible service to someone just because they're not a famous right. food critic then then that was kind of revolutionary. Yeah, so she's, and you she's think big, like it, you know it, that transfers to it's not just if you're a food critic but if you're a celebrity right, or somebody exactly. of power yeah. you're getting a different experience yeah. than if you're from like Des Moines, Idaho yeah. and going to New yeah. York City for the weekend. Which, and, which you would think those mm. are the people that have saved up for this. Mm-hmm. This is this is part of their experience. And right. you want to give them the best experience, yeah. but that wasn't the case. And so yeah. she kind of put some fear in yeah. in restaurants yeah. for making them be accountable. Yes. yes. Which is great. Yes, I love her. After yeah. reading her, I've read all of her memoirs now. I'm like, I want to be friends with you. Yeah, yeah. she's amazing. <laughs> um, <laughs> what's Ruth your name? She'll come on our show. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, my next book is The Debt to Pleasure by John Lanchester. And this is a book I literally have no idea how to describe it. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's a cookbook. It's a philosophical treatise. It's a fiction narrative. And it's all wrapped up into one wicked little package. It has a uh, fictional narrator named Tarquin Winnow. And he's an Englishman who spends part of his year in France. And he considers this volume a cookbook. But it quickly becomes a commentary on his personal food philosophy and his thoughts on what makes a person a true artist. And almost in spite of itself, it becomes a memoir. And the recipes that are included aren't written really in a traditional format, um, which normally if you 
if you cook, you know recipes are kind of technical and the language is really simplified for the ease of the cook so you can follow along mm-hmm. um, without having to read too much. But this is done in a kind of conversational structure. So he'll be listing the ingredients for blinis, which are little Russian buckwheat pancakes and you eat them with sour cream mm-hmm. and caviar. And he goes off on this tangent about the goddess series and the Greek and, and Roman ceremonies that are held <laughs> in her behalf and how part of that included lighting the tales of, of foxes on fire and how no one knows why that's the case. And it's just this huge tangent in the middle of a recipe. But they're all kind of, if you're like me and you just sort of love little trivia things, mm. then there are all kinds of little fascinating tidbits to, to latch onto that are really fun. So while he's doing these, while he's telling these uh, recipes, he starts to reveal parts of his own history, um, which are often tied to food in some way, but they illuminate his life in different ways. So He'll talk about the family housekeeper who was fired for stealing jewelry, but she also made an amazing Irish stew. So that's all included in, in his uh, in his cookbook. Uh, one of the things I really like is the way the personal information seems to come out in spite of himself. And you know that the intention of the book isn't to um, make it into a memoir, but he sort of can't help but let this information slip out. And as you, lo- as you learn more and more about Tarquin and his food philosophy, you start to read between the lines quite a bit. And you realize that there's a lot more going on here than you initially thought. And I don't want to say anything else because the the pleasure of this is watching how this unfolds. But it's it, it completely blew my mind when I read this probably 15 years ago at this point. And it's a really, really short book. It's mm-hmm. about 250 pages mm-hmm. long. It's just this kind of cute little package. It has a pear on the cover. It's It's adorable. But it's something you really want to take your time reading and probably have a computer next to you so you can look up words and concepts and any number of trivia points that you won't know what they are. And I feel like I'm fairly knowledgeable about food. Mm-hmm. And there were so many things I had to look up mm-hmm. because he's, he's just an encyclopedia. I would call, if I had to use a, a description for this book, I would use the word cunning. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's just a, a delightful book. It's something you can savor. It's one of my favorite food books ever because it's just so, so satisfying mm-hmm. on so many different levels. Uh-huh. And I have to give credit to my dad for sending this to me um, both the first time I read it and he just sent me a personal copy. Oh, Thank you, Padre. Yeah, Anne's dad. He's so nice. And that is The Debt to Pleasure by John Lanchester. So my next one is The Kitchen Counter Cooking School, How a Few Simple Lessons Transformed Nine Culinary Novices into Fearless Home Cooks by Kathleen Finn. And Kathleen Finn graduated from Le Cordon Bleu in Paris, and she returned with no idea of what to do next. She wasn't sure if she wanted to be a chef or what form. She was a writer, so she wasn't sure you know, how exactly to transfer her skills and knowledge that she just gained into her future. And so one day she's at the supermarket and she watched a woman who had a child, I believe. I don't now I don't remember if the child's with her. She finds out later that she has a child. But anyway, she's loading up her grocery cart full of processed foods and packaged foods. And so Kathleen strikes up a conversation with this woman and convinces her relatively quickly the importance of buying fresh ingredients and how easy it can be to make a recipe from scratch that's much better for you and cheaper than all of these processed foods that she was putting into her cart and about to feed her family. And so it's a successful little interaction in the grocery store. But then Kathleen goes home and she starts thinking about it and she's trying to figure out why so many people shy away from cooking the way that she's now been taught and just sort of ingrained in her that this is what you do. And she realizes that it's it's intimidating. People aren't quite sure what to do with fresh 
food mm-hmm. and, you know, natural foods and things. And it's just a lot easier and they think faster to pick up all these processed foods. So she gathers women who fe- who don't feel confident in the kitchen for various reasons. And she decides to teach them the basic kitchen skills they need to give them ins- assurance to try to branch out from relying on these sort of calorie rich but not nutritious mm-hmm. foods. And it's not always that they're only cooking processed foods. It's like it's interesting. She I think it, I think I said nine women. Yeah, I think it's nine. She goes and has them each show them what's in their pantry and in their refrigerator oh, wow. and then has them cook kind of their noteworthy meal that they would teach like what they were known for. Yeah. They would feed to their family or on a special occasion or something like that. And then from that kind of creates a curriculum for these mm-hmm. these people to teach them how much waste is going into what they're not using from what's in their refrigerator like one of the things she talks about is putting up a like a notepad next to the refrigerator and every time you would throw away like leftover chicken that you haven't used by the date that it, you need to or leftover vegetables that have gone bad or something you write down the money that you spent that oh my you gosh. are wasting that you are literally throwing away that is my entire life <laughs> just thinking oh, i wasted money on I know, that. but i mean it's it's eye-opening because yeah. you don't think about that and she's like not only is it the money that you're wasting but think about all the money and time and effort went into raising these things mm-hmm. and transporting them to your grocery store and then you're just and animals that gave, and their, animals lives that gave for, their lives for this. Yeah. yeah. So, so that's kind of the premise of it. So she takes these women and teaches them really the basics. It's like how to hold a knife, how to roast a whole chicken. She teaches them about flavors and how they can take basic, like I said, basic, simple recipes and make them interesting and flavorful based mm-hmm. on fi- flavor profiles. And basically she just demystifies cooking and makes it some, seem like something anyone can do as well as showing people that what they think of as being faster or cheaper or more convenient isn't necessarily like if you have it all in your pantry and in your refrigerator, it's a lot easier to cook from those mm-hmm. things and go to the grocery store and spend extra money on and processed and packaged food. So it was really inspiring. My actually, I read this several years ago. We, um, my sister, I have two sisters and my mom and we decided to all four of us read it as sort of like a book family oh, book club kind of thing. And we were all really inspired. We all have different levels. So my one sister's married with kids and then my other sister, I think the time was still single. So she and I were both single and we were, you know, it was in the, my mom's been cooking for many, many mm-hmm. years, but it gave us all kind of a, a different perspective to come from, but we all learned something from it. We're inspired to try things. I mean, oh, if you so walk cool. away from this not wanting to roast a whole chicken, I don't know who you are because <laughs> the, the, she You're makes it seem so easy and so delicious yeah. and so like something that anybody can do. And so I don't know. I loved it. It was called the Kitchen Counter Cooking School, How a Few Simple Lessons Transformed Nine Culinary Novices into Fearless Home Cooks by Kathleen Finn. That sounds amazing. Okay, my next book is What Would Mary Berry Do by Claire Sandy. And I don't remember how we found this. Was it Goodreads? You, I don't know. You messaged me one day yeah, and said, I know, look at this book. But I don't remember how I found it. And it's basically, I, this is a shameless ploy for us to talk about the Great British Bake Off. So let's talk about it. This is something we wanted to talk about. <laughs> From day one. From the first day of this podcast. <laughs> we keep, we kept I just couldn't to find figure ways. out how we could wedge it into a conversation about books. But here we go. <laughs> okay. How much do you love The Great British Bake Off? The Great British Bake Off is the best show ever. It really is. It really is. And I, I, I can't pinpoint why it is the best show it's ever. It's so comforting. It's and so soothing. Yeah. They, they're so gentle. 
Yeah, and they're, the stakes are so low. So they they aren't winning money. Mm-hmm. They're not winning anything. They don't yeah. get a deal or a cookbook right. or anything right. out of it. They get a cake plate and yeah. a bouquet of flowers, and that's it. And that's it. So if you don't know what we're talking about, The Great British Bake Off is a show that originated. Uh, was it on the BBC? I don't know. Yeah, and, BBC Two originally, okay. and then it was such a huge hit that it moved to BBC One. One. Ooh, Ooh, exciting. And so there have been like six seasons, I think, in yeah. the UK, but they've only aired two or three here I in the United two, States. Yeah. They bring amateur bakers together Mm -hmm. once a week. It's on weekends so that they can still have their regular jobs. And they take them out to a tent like on a very pastoral kind of English countryside place. And they give them (laughs) food challenge or baking challenges. Uh And they let them know ahead of time what two of the challenges will be so Mm -hmm. that they can practice ahead of time and kind of perfect what they want to do. But then, of course, you could never predict the weather and things that can throw you off and you're working with you're working with a different oven right stuff like that so and then the middle challenge is something that they just give them a recipe and ingredients and they it's like a technical challenge to see what their technical skills are like and but they leave out parts of the recipe because you have to rely on your knowledge to fill in those gaps so it's it's, not like tricky leaving out it's just you should know how to make uh, a victoria sponge if you right that's yes. the challenge. So it's the best. I love it. Well, and, and, and everybody's so nice to each other. Yeah, and supportive. There's n- no one has ever mean the biggest thing that's ever happened is Bingate, which was <gasps> that when was that was a big deal. <laughs> Some basically what happened was someone, uh, they were making baked Alaska. Was it something uh, frozen? Yeah, yeah, something frozen. And someone put their dessert into the freezer and, maybe someone else took it out it's not really clear it's not what clear happened. what happened it's not clear if it was like they were rearranging stuff that was in the freezer to get their stuff out and then forgot to yeah. put the other person's back in or if the like you're, it's not clear what yeah, happened yeah and and in interviews afterward the the person this happened to said it, it wasn't the person's fault no. that got blamed for it it right. was just that his dessert didn't work but um, but he got really angry and he threw the whole thing away which is why it's called bingate <laughs> and and so he when the, he was judged, then they said, you, you could have, we could have tasted any element of this, mm-hmm. we, but now you just threw it in the garbage and we can't taste it. Mm-hmm. And so that was a huge deal. And that's honestly the most drama that's ever happened on yes, the show. That which, was the biggest thing. And it, there wasn't even any accusation in the yeah, moment. No one was either. screaming. <laughs> there, the most that happened was he walked away, yeah. he walked out of the tent yeah. and just sort of cooled off. And then he came back, which... Can you imagine on an on American or something? No. <laughs> no. No, I think when I watched that episode, I was uh, texting you like, this happened here. The swear words that would be coming out of this person's mouth. No, because they're British. It's all very friendly. And they'll help each other. If yeah. someone is, mm-hmm. is finished with their part of their dessert and someone else isn't finished, then they'll just go help that other person. It's just all supportive and nice and the judges are very constructive. Yes. They're not there to just tear them down. And the hosts are delightful. Yeah. Oh, it's such a fun So show. good. It's All right. So, so tell us how this, how our whole tangent now relates to the book that you read. I don't care. I just <laughs> wanted to talk about that show. <laughs> but it does relate to the It book. does. So so one of the hosts is named uh, Mary Berry mm-hmm. on, the, on the Great British Bake Off. And she is sort of this famous baker. She's sort of the grand dame of, of British baking. And she... She was a household name before the the Bake Off started. She has written tons and tons of cookbooks. I think I want to say like 70 cookbooks. Oh my gosh. I didn't realize it was that many. I'm not completely sure on that, mm-hmm. but I feel like it's around that number. And she is is definitely a household name. Mm-hmm. And so having her, I think, on the, the Bake Off for Americans is just, oh, this is this nice person. Right. I don't know who this is, but you always hear people, all the contestants say, yeah. this is a huge deal. I'm such a huge fan of yeah. Mary Berry and I've loved her for years. Yeah. And so... So this this book is sort of a 
uh, nod to her, yeah. even though it says on the back very clearly, she is in no way affiliated <laughs> with the book. <laughs> she ha- she does not appear in the book. She is just a yeah. uh, sort of silent mm-hmm. mentor mm-hmm. in the book. Well, I feel satisfied that we talked about Bake Off. I do too. <laughs> we can just end the podcast. A year later, we finally <laughs> fit it in. Until there's a new season airing and yeah, then we'll, we'll have it. our side podcast yeah. that is Anne and Hallie talk about the Great British Bake Off. <laughs> it's sad because it will happen. It's <laughs> so true. Maybe not library sanctioned, but whatever. <laughs> um, okay, so what would Mary Berry do? A book by Claire Sandy. It's about a woman named Marie Dunwoody who works as a full-time dentist and is also really busy with her husband and three kids. And when the book starts, her nine-year-old twins have reminded her that she had signed up to bring a showstopper dessert to the annual um, like end-of-school fundraiser. Mm-hmm. And all she has the time and ability to do is stop at a convenience store and get some packaged treats. <laughs> and when she shows up to this event, she is immediately shown up by her next door neighbor, Lucy, who arrives with this gorgeous cake and seems to be full of fake humility about her perfect life and her perfect baking skills. And Marie just hates her guts. So at the fundraiser, Marie uh, finds this used copy of the Mary Berry Complete Baking Bible, which I think is probably a pretty big mm-hmm. deal. Like, I don't know if it's the Mastering the Art of French Cooking mm-hmm. of Baking in that was kind of confusing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I followed. I, I don't know if it's that kind of mm. um, Bible in mm-hmm. in the way that other chefs have done, but I think that that's kind of what we're supposed mm-hmm. to take from that. I'm not British. I don't know these things. I'm just making up stuff as I go <laughs> along. Um, but Marie promises herself that, that in uh, the next year, she won't be in the same position that she was finding herself this year, that she's going to tre- teach herself how to bake and she will use Mary's expertise and she will, she will become a baker herself. Mm-hmm. So the book follows her adventures through the year by highlighting each month or season with a particular cake. And these frame the other things that are going on with the family. So her husband is facing potential layoffs at work and and he ends up turning to baking himself for for sort of comfort and help. And Marie's own dental practice is facing competition from a younger kind of flashier dentist across the street. And her 16-year-old son is withdrawing into this online world that, that Marie doesn't understand. So she is sort of at a loss of how to deal with these things, but through everything she follows this mantra of what would Mary Berry do? And that helps her navigate life's struggles. And I've complained in the past, probably on this podcast, I think about um, women's fiction books where everyone is kind of wacky and, and they get themselves into scrapes and this Mm -hmm. leads to crazy behavior. And and I think that it makes women look um, like children. Mm -hmm. And I, I really don't like that, but this book has the same light feel as those books, but Marie never does anything dumb she's, mm. she's always really smart and capable she's very um she's never clueless in mm. in what she's doing she makes some dumb baking mistakes but that's sort of to show that she's an office at the right. beginning and then she um she gets her stuff together later so it's full of warmth and good humor and it describes lots of delicious desserts so make sure you have something sweet on hand yeah. while you're while you're reading this and you can relate to someone having both successes and failures in the kitchen as they attempt to learn how to cook. And it really surprised me just how relatable this was to me mm-hmm. and how much I, I really loved this. I, I kind of went into it thinking this is a little bit of a joke book and we're, yeah, we're, we're reading doing this, this only for yeah, Mary sort Mary. of a gimmick thing. But mm-hmm. I really, really enjoyed it. It was really fun. And and it just was everything I want light reading to uh, be. It was it was just a great book. It was fun. I'm so excited to read this. Yeah, I just passed it on to Hallie yes. <laughs> just Yay, a few minutes so ago. So. so as soon as I finish the book I'm reading right now, I'm going to move on to that. I you think. will love it, I think. And it's called What Would Mary Berry Do by Claire Sandy. I should also say that it's published in the UK and it's not available in the US. Mm. Um, I had originally tried to get this through interlibrary loan and I couldn't do it, but there are tons of inexpensive copies available on, on Amazon. So I bought a copy for probably three bucks, mm-hmm. I think, and shipping was... Or so it's it's 
something you can get. It just probably won't be through a library. Or let me know and I'll send it to you when I'm done with mine. Right. (laughs) With the the one Anne gave me. All right. So my last one is Delancey, A Man, A Woman, A Restaurant, A Marriage by Molly Weisenberg. And Molly Weisenberg is a food writer and the creator of the blog Orangeet, which is a food blog. And after she and her husband got married, he bounced around between multiple career paths. He seems like the kind of guy who like gets super focused on one thing and then that's all he spends his time doing mm-hmm. and then kind of gets sick of it and moves on to some, or something else. Not that he gets sick of it, like something else captures his attention. Yeah. So he moves on to something else. Interested in lots of things. Yeah. So that's he cool. becomes completely fascinated and completely immersed but then two months later, he's moved on, moved on yeah. something new. So he comes home one day and comes up with the idea. They've he's originally from New York City and he moved to Seattle, I believe, to be with her, to marry her. And so he comes up with the idea of opening a pizza restaurant in, in Seattle, similar to what he would have gotten New York pizza um, that he misses. And it's 2009. The economy is not <laughs> so great. Probably not the best time to open a restaurant. But Molly is supportive and, you know, wanting to be a good partner in her marriage. And so she supports him kind of in the back of her mind, figuring that this would be like any of his other flights of fancy and he'll drop it in, in the not too distant future. However, her husband stuck with it and he never moved on to something else. And soon she finds herself working with him on all the phases of actually getting this restaurant up and running and open. And so she really outlines the difficulties that come along with opening a restaurant. It's everything from like getting the proper permits and food sanitation mm-hmm. things um, to finding a location and the construction of the location and making sure that you have a working kitchen and flow in the restaurant it's like a whole different mentality than yeah. any other kind of business well I'm sure there are other kind of businesses yeah, that you have to there's think so about. many things there's so many things about. you have to think about right. and so that's all even just to get the restaurant open and then once it's open it's hiring and maintaining staff and mm-hmm. the troubles that come with that for me personally it was interesting for in throughout college and then after college I worked in a pizza restaurant it, it was sort of the same idea like kind of what you would call kind of like an upscale pizza restaurant it wasn't just pizza it was a little bit fancier mm-hmm. and um, that's kind of what I get the impression this was like it was wood burning ovens and not dominoes you know it's right, like a little bit right. nicer so is this inside I had sort of an affinity to all the things she was talking about mm-hmm. because I kept thinking of the place where I worked which I have very fond memories of and fond feelings towards and so it was I appreciated the little small details that she mentioned that I thought if you weren't a big food lover or like had experience in a restaurant maybe it would just go over your head but after having worked in a restaurant for a while you kind of I don't know there was just something about it that, that seemed very realistic and obviously it's a memoir but you know what I mean like yeah. I could identify with what she was going through but yeah. eventually she realizes that if she wants to stay married to her husband and they want to continue loving each other and being supportive of each other, she needs to back away from her involvement in the restaurant because it's too, too much for her. She doesn't want to, it's, there's kind of like a big blow up that she and her husband have one day at the restaurant and she leaves and she realizes that she just needs to leave it in the hands of her husband and be less involved. She's still involved, but not on like the day to day workings of it and involved in the personnel management and things like that. So like I said, I found it really engaging and just a fascinating look at the many pitfalls that accompany opening a restaurant. You know, that's there's some statistic out there about the number of restaurants that fail. And yeah. uh, it's no wonder it's a really, really hard business. And as far as I know, it's that restaurant is still going. So that oh, was cool. 2009. Now we're in 2016. So they've had a successful run of it. He stuck um, with it. Yeah, Yay. I know. And yeah, he stuck <laughs> with it. And she has a very candid way of storytelling. It definitely feels like a, somebody that you know telling you about this whole experience. Mm-hmm. So that is Delancey. Hold on. Delancey, A Man, A Woman, A Restaurant, A Marriage by Molly Weisenberg. I think it's interesting that you did all 
Nonfiction, and I did all fiction. All fiction. I, did, I am too. Uh, well, it's really interesting. <laughs> and I, I told you last night, there was one that I had in mind when we came up for this topic that right. once I started writing up my notes, I completely, like, it just flew out of my mind. Yeah. But that was fiction, and yeah. I'm going to save it because I'm going to talk about it in a different episode well, at some point. We're going to do another food yeah. episode at yeah. some point. Yeah. So. yeah, we had so many <laughs> options. So I know, I don't know why I stuck with mostly non, or I stuck with all nonfiction. Knock, knock. They're doing some work on our roof. So if you're hearing pounding, that's what that is. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, so we'll be right back with what we're reading this week. what are you reading this week? Um, my book is called Criminal Confections by Colette London. And I felt like for all of my <laughs> love of culinary mysteries, I couldn't not talk about one so in this episode. continuing the theme. Yeah. But I realized that all of the mysteries that I've, all of the series that I follow, I've already talked about on mm. the podcast because I try not to start up too many series at, at once. I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's difficult. But I, I wanted to talk about a culinary mystery. So I started a new one. This is the first in the Chocolate Whisperer Mystery Series, which is a hilarious and awesome series name. I love it so much. (laughs) It's about a young woman named Hayden Mundy Moore, and she is a chocolate expert. And she's hired by chefs and chocolate companies and restaurateurs to help them revamp their recipes and develop new products. So she's an expert in the different types of chocolates, their different sources, the, the different, like, percentages of cacao to other ingredients. Mm -hmm. So, so she's able to kind of, um, go in and tell people what they need to tweak and the recipes to make them better. And she's able to travel the world for this job, but her latest client is a family-owned chocolate company named La Maitre in uh, San Francisco that's just opened up an all-chocolate spa just outside of the city. It sounds so nice. <laughs> so Hayden has been invited to this to the spa for a retreat for company executives and, and other um, industry insiders mm. while she's finishing up a report for the company about their latest chocolate line, which claims to have medicinal properties. And she personally wasn't very impressed with what she found. When she was talking to the recipe developer, she also had some issues with, with the line herself. And so when this woman turns up dead, then it seems like maybe someone wants to cover up that uh, something else is going on with this company. So her death is blamed on a heart attack, but Hayden suspects otherwise. And she starts to suspect that the I haven't gone to the part yet to know what kind of what actually killed her, some sort of poison, I'm Mm -hmm. assuming. Um, But she starts to suspect that she was the target for for this murder. Um, This is definitely a cozy, but it feels a little bit like chiclet. Um, Mm -hmm. Hayden herself is a little bit more sassy than you oh, okay. find in your typical cozy mysteries she doesn't live in a town full of eccentrics she's uh-huh. kind of this jet setter which isn't normally what you no. find but it still really has all the same like bloodless death and mm-hmm. no sex and no actual violence in any way so so you'll still get that same cozy appeal there's lots and lots of, of descriptions of decadent treats and intriguing chocolate-based spa treatments so make sure you have chocolate on hand if you don't want to hate your life while you're reading this book <laughs> Um, it's called Criminal Confections by Colette London. So what are you reading this week? Well, what I'm actually reading this week, we've already talked about it on the podcast. You talked about it. I think it was our uh, Books to Movies page to screen episode. I'm reading The Enchanted April by Elizabeth <gasps> Conner. Oh, so I love good. that book. 
classic. It's so good. So I'm not going to talk about that. But <sighs> if you are interested in that one, go back and listen to that episode when Anne talked about it. So I'm going to talk about a book that I actually finished last week. It's Lair of Dreams by Libba Bray. I'm going to gasp just as much for that one. <laughs> uh, so this is the Libba second Bray. book in the Diviner series. Anne talked about the first book in have our Have You Tried YA episode, I think. I think. So, Does yeah. that sound right? In this book, Bray shifts the focus from Evie, who's the main character in the first book, and fleshes out the secondary characters that appeared. Evie is still in it, but she just plays a more minor role. It's not the only focus it's not on her she's been outed as a diviner and so now she's a popular radio show and it's kind of like the toast of the town <laughs> she's known as the sweetheart seer at the same time that this, so this is obviously like jazz age new york city mm-hmm. in 1920s at the same time a sleeping sickness is overtaking new york city where people fall asleep it starts out that they're like content and then it ends up that they are having nightmares and they end up dying and it like eats them from the inside out and they die oh my gosh um, so Henry, who is in the first book, and and a new character named Ling Chan can walk in dreams. So they have the ability to sort of potentially solve what is happening to all of these people. But then they have their own personal things going on that kind of overlap with why they're walking in dreams and what they're seeing in these dreams. So in this book, instead of a serial killer like in the first book that mm-hmm. was kind of the menacing force behind it. This this is all about ghosts and nightmares that are stalking the oh characters. So it is still so creepy. Like Liver Bray can write the creepy factor yeah. like nobody else. But it also she's so good at depicting the nineteen twenties just beautifully. It's like both in its glory, you know, mm-hmm. there's like flappers and prohibition and jazz and like all these things speakeasies that like speakeasies and, yeah. and it's like all seems kind of glamorous and interesting. Yeah. But then also she doesn't shy away from talking or not talking about, you know, it's just, just like inherent to her story about um, there's a lot of racism, racism, the rise of the, excuse me, the rise of the KKK is going on mm-hmm. at this point. Uh, organized crime is becoming a big deal. It's just, and there's the darker side of the American dream, like, yeah. you know, and there's a, a connection between the fact that it's this dream world going on and then the, the American dream that all these people are reaching for at the same time. I listen to this as an audiobook the same way I did for the first one. If you are an audiobook listener, in my opinion, this is the only way to experience these books. The narrator is fantastic. Her mm-hmm. name is January, January Lavoie and she just brings them to life in a way that I know for a fact, if I tried to read these in my own mind I would mm-hmm. not be able to develop these characters the way she does um there's it's just entertaining it's atmospheric it's suspenseful and creepy it's also informative I felt like mm-hmm. I learned a little bit um I just can't say enough about these books so that is Lair of Dreams by Libba Bray it's the second one in the Diviners series go read it now but read the Diviners first yeah, if you definitely. haven't read the Diviners and it is a big book I think like I said I did this as an audiobook so I'm not exactly sure how long it is but I'm mm-hmm. guessing maybe around si- 700 pages yeah, ish so. it's not a quick read but it is is well worth your time well and they they read fast they're just yes. big so oh, yeah. yeah they're yeah I was always eager to get yeah. back to it when and I, I've, I've listened to the diviners and I've read it twice oh, okay and, which is probably the most I've ever read a book yeah I, I'm not really a repeat reader at all um but I, I love the series so yeah. much and the, I I did really enjoy the the reading aspect mm-hmm. of it but listening to it adds a difference it's just, it's just so good. yeah I think that I think Lair of Dreams was just nominated for a an audio, audio word yeah yeah uh yes yes which is cool yes yeah yeah I, she's she's doing good work she is doing good work all right let's go back and mention all of the books that we talked about today okay i talked about food whore a novel of dining and deceit by jessica tom the debt to pleasure by john lanchester 
What Would Mary Berry Do by Claire Sandy. And what I'm reading this week is Criminal Confections by Colette London. And I talked about Garlic and Sapphires, The Secret Life of a Critic in Disguise by Ruth Reichel. The Kitchen Counter Cooking School, How a Few Simple Lessons Transformed Nine Culinary Novices into Fearless Home Cooks by Kathleen Finn. Delancey, A Man, A Woman, A Restaurant, A Marriage by Molly Weisenberg. And what I was reading this week was Lair of Dreams by Libba Bray. All right, so that's it for us this week. If you want to get in touch with us to give us feedback or suggestion on a topic you'd like us to discuss, you can email us at wellreadpod at gmail.com or find us on our Facebook page or on Twitter at wellreadpodcast. Uh, thank you to everybody who's rated and reviewed us on iTunes. If you like the show, if you've made it this far, I'm guessing you do, uh, please go ahead and rate, us review and rate or review us on iTunes or your other podcast provider of choice our podcast is engineered by adam farver our theme music is kitten by poddington bear we keep our show notes at beaufortcountylibrary.org slash well read where you can find a listing of every book we talked about in this episode thank you all for listening and happy reading <laughs>